Good morning. This is the fourth and last week of the series on Samuel. Sam, our Sam, has traditionally taken the Thanksgiving weekend off so he can visit his in-laws in Missouri and chow down on his mother-in-law's traditional Thanksgiving repast. And in keeping with that tradition, he's asked me to fill in for him, which I'm happy to do. Uh, And he's back, incidentally, but he's still taking the day off. But I hope everyone's had a great Thanksgiving, and I am before you this morning to bestow a blanket indulgence for any gluttony that may have accompanied your holidays. (laughs) However, I cannot give an indulgence for any transgressions related to Black Friday. So if you exhibited rude and tumultuous behavior in a big box store on Friday, that's between you and God. Now, during the period of Israel's history, following the leaderships of Moses and Joshua, the nation of Israel would go through cycles of disaffection with God as they became corrupted by the cultures and practices of the inhabitants of the areas that they had conquered, and then a leader would arise who would become a champion of national repentance and a return to a trust in God. And this was the period of the judges. And this series has been about one of the most highly regarded uh, figures among those judges. And indeed, one of the most highly regarded figures of the Old Testament. And destiny and trajectory of Israel was about to be altered as Samuel's position of leadership would end and an era of the kings would begin. Now, as a brief review of this series to date, we've noted how Hannah was childless and prayed for God to take away her reproach by giving her a son. And so God did. And Hannah had promised that if God would do that, she would give him to God and God's service all the days of his life. But So God answered Hannah's prayer, and little Samuel was born. And after she had, he had been weaned, Hannah took, her to, took him to Eli, the priest, to fulfill her vow. And then we saw how Samuel, as a young boy, the word Samuel means heard of God. Uh, And so literally, we see how God became, uh, had, had called Samuel, and he became his messenger to the people of Israel. And last week, we looked and saw that during the priesthood of Eli, Israel lapsed back into idolatry and forgot their dependence upon God, and were in constant conflict with their enemies, the Philistines. And finally, in recognition of their sins, Israel makes somewhat of reform from idolatry and once again turned to God. The corrupt sons of Eli, uh, whose names were Eli, or rather Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. And then Eli, as you remember, who was somewhat corpulent, uh, sitting in a chair, fell backwards and broke his neck and died in keeping with what God had told him would happen to him. And from that point on, Samuel becomes a circuit-riding prophet and judge of the nation. But in keeping with their fickle history, Israel, as Samuel gets old, demands that Samuel appoint a king to rule over them so that they can be like all the other nations around them. And Samuel tells them what to expect with a king, but they don't care. Give us a king, they demand. And God tells Samuel, it's not you they have rejected, they rejected me. Give them a king. What's that old saying? Be careful what you pray for. Which brings us to chapter 12, which is 
Samuel's farewell speech to the nation that he has faithfully led and loved, but which is going down a ruinous roads. Now, I believe last words mean something. Believe it or not, I've been accused of being obsessed with death, and in particular, my death. But let me assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. However, I am obsessed with markers in life, graduations, marriages, the birth of children and grandchildren, life crises, and on and on. And death happens to be a major marker in our journey through life. And when one knows that they are probably speaking to family and friends for the final time, those words take on more importance and emotion. I've tried to imagine what I would say to my family and friends and cats if I were speaking to them for the last time, and I confess that I'm not sure what I would say. Would I issue some warning about things I have learned in life? Would I reminisce about a shared fond memory? Would I just express my love or anger? If I knew it was my last message, it would definitely be emotional. I remember many years ago, I would just been appointed as a deacon in this congregation. And in December of 1974, one of the older deacons uh, was training me. And we were in this building in the back that we call the pit, only it was smaller and it was just a garage back then. And Art told me that he had learned the day before that he had been diagnosed with can terminal cancer. They'd given him three years to live. And tears rolled down his cheeks, as he told me, and I didn't know how to respond or what to say. But it was very emotional. And for the next three years, he went through a series of kind of self-medication. He tried the Laetrile treatments and all of those things. But eventually, the cancer overcame him, and he lapsed into a coma uh, for several days. He was in the St. Joe Hospital in Mishawaka. And I remember going down there with an elder one afternoon to visit him and uh, basically to visit his wife and daughter who were with him. He was in a coma. And so after we'd been there for a few minutes and talked, all of a sudden, Art woke up. And he looked around the room at each one of us, and it's as if he recognized us. He didn't say anything, but then he fell back and died. And it just impressed on me, those final moments are so impactful and fraught with emotion. All of you, I'm sure, who are baseball fans and probably those who aren't have heard of Lou Gehrig. He retired from the, 19, from the Yankees in 1939 at the age of 36. Uh, and he had, just until prior in that season, played in every single game uh, since 1921. He held the record for the longest seri uh, series of games that he had played in. The record that remained intact for another 59 years, it wasn't broken until Alex Rodriguez, ironically another Yankee, uh, broke that record. But he began to lose his strength in 1939. He wasn't hitting any longer, and he pulled himself out of the lineup and then retired at the age of 36 because he had been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a disease that has become known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it would end his life two years later. And on July 4th of 1939, they had a, a Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day at Yankee Stadium. Every single seat in the stadium was filled. And they brought back a lot of players, some who had left the Yankees, who had formerly played with Lou Gehrig, to come and pay their honor to him. And I just wanted to see a click of this emotional farewell 
uh, speech, short speech, that Lou Gehrig gave on that day. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two, For the past weeks, two weeks, you've been reading been about reading a bad break. break. Today, Today, I consider, I consider myself, myself the luckiest, the luckiest man, man on the face, on the of, the face earth. of the earth. When you look, when around, you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Farewell speeches in general are speeches that are fraught with a lot of emotion. When Abraham Lincoln had been elected the 16th president in 1860, he left his home in Springfield, Illinois on February 11, 1861 to make the journey to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated. It was the last time he would see Springfield, and ahead of him lay a deeply divided nation and a war that would see over 700,000 men uh, killed. And he would experience the short-lived relief of an end to that war and then his own death. And he would never return to Springfield alive. And as he was getting ready to board the train that would take him uh, to Washington, he paid an unforgettable tribute to his friends and neighbors in what is known today as the farewell address. So Lincoln spoke these words from the Great Western Railroad Station. He said, my friends, no one not in my situation can appreciate my feeling of sadness at this parting. To this place and the kindness of these people, I owe everything. Here I have lived for a quarter of a century and have passed from a young man to an old man. Here my children have been born and one is buried. I now leave not knowing when or whether ever I may return with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. Without the assistance of the divine being whoever attended him, I cannot succeed. With that assistance, I cannot fail. Trusting in him who can go with me and remain with you and be everywhere for good, let us confidently hope that all will yet be well. And to his care, commending you, as I hope your prayers will commend me, I bid you an affectionate farewell. 1 Samuel 12 is such an occasion. It is the record of the prophet and judge Samuel's final words to the nation he had served for an entire lifetime, even from his early youth. He's interceded for them before God. He has served as a conduit to the nation of God's kingship. And he has seen an obstinate and defiant people reject the path that God, through him, had laid out for the nation. The people thought they knew better. And he is an old man now. So to set the context, Israel had been assembled at a place called Gilgal. This is where Samuel had, just a few days previously, at God's instruction, seated his leadership of Israel and because of their insistence, made them a nation like all the other nations around them and given them a king. 
So Samuel anointed Saul to be their king. He had warned them that a king would conscript their young men and young women into his service. He would confiscate by taxation a portion of their wealth and in essence treat them as earthly vassals like all earthly rulers do. So what follows is not an angry, I told you so. It is a loving warning of a shepherd to the flock he had led for so long. And the words are borne out of love for Israel, and his words merit our attention. Let us begin reading with verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. At this point, Samuel asks for an audit of his service to Israel. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Now remember, he's told them that their new leader will be taking from them and more than just an ox and a donkey. Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. And the people replied to his questions. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. And Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. What Samuel has done here is testify to his integrity as a national leader. Samuel, having challenged a review of his public life, received a unanimous testimony to the unsullied honor of his personal character as well as the justice and integrity of his public administration. When Samuel says, the Lord witness against you, he is saying that by their own admission, he had given them no cause to request a change in the divine government by judges. And therefore, the blame of desiring a change in government rested with them, not Samuel. I don't believe they fully perceived what he was telling them. But think for a moment. After our recently uh, seemingly interminable campaign and election season, how many public officials, no matter what their stupid and insipid campaign ads and slogans said, will put their records under such a microscope and say, audit my integrity? I think from the local to the state to the national politicians, no matter the party, compromises of character have been made. It is the nature of human government, governance. If you were to examine career politicians in Washington from both parties, you'll find men and women who eventually leave with much more wealth than they had when they arrived at their seats of power. And many will leave to sit on boards of directors collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars per year and more because of the access to the halls of power that they give to their corporate benefactors. Or they will move to plush offices on K Street in Washington to lobby their former colleagues for benefits that will result in them receiving fat salaries. Power in human government corrupts. Personal integrity is a rare, rare commodity. And Samuel is stating the case of the integrity accountable to God with which he has served Israel. And the people acknowledge that Samuel has been that kind of leader. Personal integrity has a strength all its own. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge. It's currently in the theaters, and I commend it highly to you. However, it's not a family movie. There's a lot of scenes of the horrors of war that are difficult to watch. But my wife and I 
wait yesterday to see it. And it's the true story of a man named Desmond Doss, who was conscientiously opposed because of his faith to taking up arms during World War II, but nonetheless enlisted in the Army to serve as a medic. And I don't want to ruin the plot line for you if you haven't seen it, but the story is centered around his struggle to maintain the integrity of his beliefs while serving his country. He is the only conscientious objector to ever receive the Congressional Medal of Honor for his heroism. His integrity saved many lives in battle. Such integrity is so rare in society that I confess to my relief that the theater was dark and I was able to sort of hide the emotions that it evoked. There's also a great documentary on Desmond Doths on YouTube that I would commend to you as well. Integrity is such a rare commodity among humanity. A man's word is not deemed his bond because we now consult lawyers to draw up contracts because we cannot trust others to perform as they promise. Of all the political campaign promises that have been made before the election, how much do you think will be followed up on? Even the guardians of integrity in our society often show a lack of integrity. When I used to be a manager in our Merrillville office, we had as a component of the organization for which I worked, the Internal Revenue Service, yes, I am a reformed bureaucrat. We had uh, something called the Inspector's Office. Today they're, they've been taken out of IRS and put in the Treasury Department as the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. But back in those days, I knew the inspector from over there, and we talked. Sometimes we went out to lunch together, and he, he liked to show me his new government-issued car because they were always of a higher grade than those that they gave us in the collection division. Uh, but one of the employees in the local office had gotten in some sort of a ethical issue and had to be investigated, and he did the investigation. And because the interview he was conducting lasted beyond normal work hours, uh, he offered to give her a ride home since she had no other way to get home. And I remember her telling me afterwards that she had gotten into this new government-issued car, uh, which was very nice, and what she experienced when she tried to get out was the smearing of ice cream on the door handles in the back seat which tells me there were kids that were riding in there. So even those who are supposed to be guarding our integrity can't always be relied upon to have integrity. But integrity was the hallmark of Samuel's service to Israel. Now back to the text in 1 Samuel 12, verse 6, where Samuel begins to recount God's record of faithfulness in making a nation out of Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and for your ancestors. And he begins to give them a, hand, a thumbnail review of their history as a nation and God's acts to rescue them as a nation. Verse 8. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. Now that's over 400 years of history that is narrowed down to 10 words. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. Samuel doesn't have to get into all the details about how Israel has not fully obeyed God by casting out the corrupting cultures of the former inhabitants of the land of Canaan and how that idolatry and pagan rituals were allowed to remain among God's people in various forms and eventually corrupt their religious practices. And they would worship objects of stone and wood while still claiming to worship the one true God. So continuing, So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, 
the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab and fought against them. And Samuel gives just a few instances from Israel's history of how God let them reap the consequences of their rebellion until it drove them to repentance. The point being that God was always there to take them back. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, Baal and Ashtoreth were the god and goddess worshipped by the pagans of that day. They represented fertility and all kinds of sexual debauchery was associated with their worship. Let's just say it would be more exciting than what we're doing here this morning. But God could not be pleased, so please just keep your seat. Continue with the text. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, Barak, no, not that Barak, this was the man who assisted Deborah, Jephthah and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Over and over again, God received a penitent Israel back and saved them. No matter how many times Israel was unfaithful, God in his unfathomable mercy was willing to reclaim them. But no matter how many times God restores Israel, Israel tends toward the corruption of the nations and wants to be just like them. Verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now permit me just a quick observation here. When God was the king... There was no bureaucratic state that siphoned off Israel's gross domestic product. What I mean is that God's direct rule was the most efficient and cost-effective form of government that the world has ever known. When a king and all of the bureaucracy that accompanies human government was introduced to Israel, the burden and cost to the Israelites was tremendous. And we have experienced the same thing in our own government. Did you know that the number of local, state, and Federal government employees currently exceeds the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States by almost 10 million. And I tell you this as one who has been part of the federal bureaucracy. However, I'm still taking my retirement check. Now, how much of the nation's wealth do you think is siphoned off by an administrative state that is so vast and large? This isn't a comment about political views as much as to say we need to learn from Israel's mistakes and make our allegiance and loyalty to the kingdom of God above all else. I confess that I was somewhat nervous when Sam told us he was going to preach a series about the politics of Jesus a few weeks back. But the conclusions to be drawn from those lessons, I believe, were absolutely correct. As much as I love and am blessed to be living in this country, my first allegiance has to be to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This nation will not endure forever. No nation endures forever. Only God and his Christ endures. So Samuel's warning in his farewell applies to us also. So let's continue with verse 13. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against His commands, His hands will be against you as it was against your ancestors. There. There is the warning with which Samuel wanted to leave his people. Serve and obey the Lord. Don't rebel against the Lord. And that goes for your king also. 
The point is that God still must be the ultimate authority or it will not go well for you. Samuel wishes to put an exclamation point to his warning. In order for us to appreciate what is happening next, we need to know that harvest time in the land of Palestine occurs at the end of June or the beginning of July because it seldom or never rains then. The sky is usually serene and cloudless. There could not, therefore, have been a stronger and more appropriate proof of a divine mission than the phenomenon of rain and thunder happening at this time without any forecast of its approach. And the people regarded it as a miraculous display of divine power. So continuing with verse 16, Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel. Now Samuel's made his point. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. At least on that one day, the people recognized how they had rejected the kingship of the one who had been faithful through all of their national history to care for and guide them. And God, who is ever merciful, once again invited them to return. Verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of the great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. The patience and forbearance of God is unfathomable. The closest I think that we as humans can get to understanding it is our attempts to nurture our children. They can be cute and adorable and absolutely precious until they get to a certain age, usually around the age of 13. Then it's game on. Then the challenge for the parent is to give space for maturing, at the same time monitoring behaviors that turns dark hair to gray. And as they develop their own personhood, they often behave rebelliously, sneakily experimenting with life in ways that a parent finds threatening to their parental authority and potentially harmful to their child. And the struggle of guiding those young lives to maturation can be a real challenge. But a father or mother who loves their child will never look at them and think, I'll never take you back. There's nothing that you can do that will cause me to stop loving you and longing to help you and find the right path again. And so God loved Israel that way. He never left them. He never forsook them. And so Samuel, like a good shepherd, concludes by telling Israel, in spite of what they have done, he will continue to intercede for them. And again, verse 20, Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. So in light of Samuel's final words to the nation of Israel, how does that apply to us here at Living Stones? 
I think the answer is, on what do we rely? I confess that there are times that I wish we looked a little fancier here. A more modern facility, a much bigger cash reserve from which we can plan. And on and on we could go with a wish list for how we might be more impressive as a group to those who may be an outside observer. But I fear we'd be falling into the trap of trying to look like all the other nations around us. Our only concern should be, are we relying on God and God alone? God does some amazing things with those who appear small and weak. Israel was nothing among the family of nations, but as long as they were faithful to God, it was God who made them a great nation. Samuel's farewell teaches me that I need to rely on God because God never fails. And it teaches me that God is always ready to forgive. Just as he took Israel back when they recognized their sin and asked for forgiveness, there are those of us here this morning who stumble and fall daily. And God stands always ready to take you and me back when we've stumbled and fallen. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Our strength is not in ourselves or in men or women or in large bank accounts or anything that the world recognizes as power. But our strength is in the Lord. Would you please bow with me? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, for your strength, for your patience, for your unremitting mercy and forgiveness. Father, we recognize that we are sinful humanity, but we also recognize, Father, that you have adopted us as your children. And for that adoption, Father, we are thankful. And we pray, Father, that we will ever be loyal and owe our first allegiance to you. Help us to be people of integrity, Father, to follow you all the days of our life. We pray in your son's name. Amen.